here at Christ the King Church. We're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in the historic Reformed faith, and we're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And today, in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at Peter's denial of Christ Jesus. We're going to read Mark 14, verses 27 through 31, and then I'm going to jump forward to verses 66 through 72. And our Old Testament passage for the day is going to be uh, Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9, which is the, the Old Testament passage that Jesus quotes in our text this morning. All right. But before we turn to the scriptures, allow me to pray for the illumination of God's word. So let's pray once again. Father, we come in the name of Christ our Lord, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit as we turn to the scriptures. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Revive us, O Lord, according to your word. And may we keep your righteous ordinances. Accept the freewill offerings of our mouths as we sing and teach us your ordinances. Our lives are continually in your hands, so may we not forget your law. May we see the good news of Jesus Christ in this passage today. For like King David, we have inherited your testimonies forever. And indeed, the gospel of Mark testifies to the goodness and grace of Jesus. Your testimonies are the joy of our hearts. This morning, Father, may we incline our hearts to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. And now instruct us by your Spirit so that we may live in a way that pleases you. Amen. If you would, stand now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, starting in the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stand next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I, I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Now we turn to the gospel of Mark. And we're going to pick up today in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Turning over to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know uh, know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. One of the all-time great movies is The Princess Bride. And at one point, if you've seen the movie, uh, you remember that the hero, Wesley, is believed to be dead. But he, he really has just taken on the mantle of the dread pirate Roberts, the man in all black with a black mask and a sword. And at one point, appearing as the dread pirate Roberts, he's climbing up the side of a cliff. He's got no rope, got no harness, nothing. He's just free soloing the side of this cliff because he's in hot pursuit of his one true love, Princess Buttercup. My wife said to me, is that really her name? I said, yeah, that's actually the character's name. It's unbelievable. But she, at that point in the movie, she's been kidnapped by the Sicilian Vizzini and his two henchmen, Fezzik the Giant and the master swordsman, Inigo Montoya, probably one of the most quotable movie characters of all time. Uh, Montoya, remember, stays behind, right, as the giant and the Sicilian carry the, the princess bride off. Montoya, the swordsman, stays behind to wait until Wesley can reach the top so they can duel to the death, and he plans to kill Wesley. Montoya, as he says several times in that scene, hates to wait, and he leans over the cliff, and he begins to have a conversation with this man that he plans to kill. And he says, do you think you can hurry up? And uh, they begin to have a conversation from there, and Wesley says, maybe throw a rope or a branch or, I don't know, go find something useful to do. And Montoya says, look, I promise I will not kill you, until you reach the top. And Wesley says, that's very comforting, but I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. To which Montoya responds, could I give you my word as a Spaniard? And he says, no good. I've known too many Spaniards. And then Montoya says, isn't there any way that you could trust me? And Wesley says, nothing comes to mind. And he's hanging on a cliff and he's having this dialogue about trust with a man who's vowed to kill him, right? And then Montoya gets very serious and he looks down and he says, I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. And without balking, without hesitating, Wesley says, throw me the rope. What is Inigo doing there? He's swearing an oath. He's giving his word. He's making a vow, not as a Spaniard, but as a son who loves his deceased father. And it's on that word, not the word of a Spanish man, but on the word of a loving son that Wesley is convinced to trust him. And you know, once Wesley reaches the top, they have this very charming but strange dialogue for two men that are about to try to kill each other. And in that conversation, Inigo Montoya reveals his lifelong oath, his vow, to find the six-fingered man who killed his father. And his plan is to find him and to have justice, in, in his words, revenge. Right? As he says, revenge is a bad business. It doesn't pay the bills. But that's his lifelong vow that he's made to his dead father and to himself. Well, as you know, neither one of them is left-handed, as it comes out in the duel, right? And so they end up switching swords to the right hand, have this great, amazing duel. Terrible soundtrack to that scene, but it's a wonderful scene nonetheless. And Montoya loses. He loses the duel to Wesley, and he falls to his knees in despair because he thinks he's about to die, and he thinks he's failed to keep his word to his father. His oath will be broken. That whole scene, from the time they start talking when Wesley's on the side of the cliff to the time that Wesley defeats him in the duel, it has one common thread throughout, and that is giving your word and keeping your word, making a vow and keeping it. 
In this passage that we're looking at today in the Gospel of Mark, Peter gives Jesus his word, and he really, really means it. But within a few hours, his vow, his oath is broken, and he makes a new one, a worse one. He makes a false promises to complete strangers as he denies the Lord to whom he swore his oath. You see, in our fallen condition as people, our wisdom in giving our word and our ability to keep our word fall sinfully short of God's standard for keeping our word. Sometimes we lack prudence in giving our word. We give our word in haste. We're all bluster. We're too quick to speak. We're too slow or too dull in thought before we give a vow. Our word can mean very, very little, even when we super duper mean it. Sometimes it's because we lack the ability to guarantee the follow-through, right? There's just things that are outside of our control. We really meant it. We did everything to keep the, we could to keep the promise, but we couldn't because there's things going on around us that hindered us from doing so. Sometimes we fail to keep our word because we are so unaware about our true nature that we genuinely don't see. We're not going to keep our word the second that it gets, gets tough. We may even know that we should, But deep down, we don't want to, or we don't really intend to in the depths of our heart, so that the moment that it gets hard to keep that promise, to keep that word, we simply will not. But here in this text, our word, the word of mere mortals, is contrasted with the Lord's word. The big idea of this passage is the word of Christ is always fulfilled. Peter fails to fulfill his word, to keep his promise, But Jesus says to him, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows just twice. This very night that will happen, Peter, and that's exactly what happens. And that is a microcosm of the entire story of the Bible, that God, the Lord, gives his word, and he always fulfills his word. He's always faithful and true. Now, I want to break up this text this morning into two sections. It's already kind of divided for us. Verses 27 and 31 are the prediction. And as we look at Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, I want us to focus in on two people in particular. The first is Jesus himself, who is portrayed here as the shepherd king. Jesus is the shepherd king described in the book of Zechariah. Right? He's portrayed as an ally, a co-belligerent of the Lord, of Yahweh. This is actually the third reference to the book of Zechariah in four chapters in Mark. Mark is definitely drawing on the, the words of this prophet. And this reference that, that Jesus uses to the prophet Zechariah is towards the end of a story arc in the, the prophet's book. Uh, the Messiah rides in on, on a donkey, on a colt. He's rejected as a shepherd of God's people. God, who is his ally, is seen in the passage we just read. Did it, did it strike you as odd? Right, that God says to the sword, all right, turn against my shepherd, the man who stands right beside me. That seems strange. How can that be? God never uh, betrays his covenant allies. God does not seem like, there's all these characters in the Bible that do betray their, their allies, but never God. So how can this be? Well, this, of course, is the prophecy. This is a prophecy of God the Father uh, pouring out his wrath upon the Son for the sake of the flock. That's what's going on. Jesus understood what was about to happen. He understood what just in a few short hours he would be experiencing on the cross. See, Jesus understands who he is. He understands that he is the main character of Scripture. Have you you heard that in pop culture lately, the main character? right? We all kind of know that, but now what it means is is, uh, this is the most important person in like a social group or a setting. 
you know, it's often used in, in high school and middle school, like this guy's the main character, meaning he's the most popular guy in school, right? That's not what I'm saying here. Jesus is not the most popular guy in Jerusalem. It's quite the opposite, right? In the grand story of the cosmos, Jesus is the main character. Furthermore, Jesus clearly believed in the resurrection. Did you catch what he said? Look, you're all going to fall away, but after I'm raised up, meet me in Galilee. He's, the, 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 the resurrection didn't surprise Jesus. He wasn't like back from the dead, like, wow, glad that worked out. He's anticipating their falling away. And this falling away would be temporal because he foresees that they will be with him in Galilee, even Peter. I want you to note kind of the, the language here. There's a striking of the shepherd that leads to the scattering of the flock. But there's a resurrection of that shepherd that leads to them regathering in Galilee. You see, part of what we're doing as we gather and regather every Lord's Day in this room is we are reminding one another and testifying to the world that our Savior, our shepherd, did not stay dead. Because he was raised, we can gather here. Listen, there are people gathering this morning in buildings that look like churches, and they deny the divinity of Jesus. They deny the story of the resurrection. They believe the resurrection was merely symbolic. It's merely uh, kind of an allegory for spirituality, but it's not real and it's not physical. It is pointless for them to gather to worship because if Christ is not truly raised from the dead, then his people cannot be gathered by the Spirit. If Christ is not out of that grave and at the right hand of the Father, it is useless for us to gather here and worship in his name. Worship always requires a mediator, and if our mediator is dead, we are toast because we are entering the presence of a holy and righteous God, and without a mediator, we cannot survive. Only judgment is coming. Do you see the importance of having a resurrected Savior, a resurrected shepherd, a resurrected, a, a raised mediator? But who raised Jesus from the dead? This is kind of interesting when you study in scriptures. Romans 6, 4 says it's God the Father. Romans 6, uh, 10 through 11, and Romans 8, 11 says it's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus implies in John 2 and in John 10 that he's going to raise himself back up. Resurrection, new life, is the work of the triune God. Your spiritual resurrection and your physical one that is to come, it is the work of a holy and righteous triune Lord who keeps his word. And when he says where Christ is, there will you be, he means it. And he keeps his promises. So now let's focus in as Peter as the spokesman for the apostles. Usually, what do you see in Peter? You see Peter speaking on behalf of the whole group. And in some sense, he, he does that once again. There's bluster from Peter, there's bad news from Jesus, and then there's bad vows from all 11 disciples. R.T. France uses the word bravado to describe Peter's behavior. But I wonder how the other 10 guys felt, because remember, Judas is out of the picture. How did the other 10 guys feel? when you Did you see it in the text? Peter says, even though they all fall away, I'll stay with you. Right? It's kind of like, did they give him a side eye? Like, what was their response? Or did they just go, yeah, typical Peter. Like, how did they respond to that? Just right out in the open in front of them. Yeah, all of these jamokes are going to fall away, just like you said, but not me. I'm special. As I read this, I was talking with Michael in the office, our, our pastoral intern, this past week. We're sitting down, and, and we're, both, uh, we're both Appalachian Americans. We're both living in East Tennessee that, as the descendants of Scotch-Irish immigrants. And I was like, man, there's some really wacky kind of Appalachian American honor culture similarities to Peter here. Like his honor has been offended that Jesus would say you're going to fall away and he's got to really, really insist that he's going to keep his word even though he won't. It's very similar. Right? 
It's very bad news from Jesus after the bluster from Peter. He says, no, no, no. You're going to have a very special kind of falling away here. Everybody's going to scatter, but you're going to denounce me. Not once, not twice, but three times. And then Peter insists. He basically says, I know more than you, Jesus. <laughs> That's really not what's going to happen. He's never seen Jesus say something's going to happen and then Jesus be wrong. He's never seen that. In three years of walking aside this man, Jesus has always been right, right? Peter's been wrong multiple times, multiple times, sometimes multiple times in one chapter of the Bible. But he's like, no, this time I'm right. Jesus is wrong. And he leads the way because what did you catch it at the end of verse 31? The rest of the disciples are like, yep, me too. They all say the same thing. You know, Peter says, Jesus, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to follow you to the death. For sure. In verse 31, the last phrase in verse 31 says, all the disciples agreed with Peter. They say the same thing. So everybody here is a hot mess. Jesus is like, you're all going to fall away. And they're like, no, to the death, we're going to follow you. And in less than 20 verses, they're all fleeing for their lives. Right? Now, in the most technical sense of the word vow or oath, are they actually making one here? Well, yes, it's very vow-ish. It's oath-esque. They're promising Jesus to keep their word to the point of being willing to die. Look, folks, when you start invoking life and death, that's vow level oath tier territory, right? When you start invoking those types of things, life and death, to give your word, you're moving beyond the normal range of promises. So after this little conversation takes place, they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. And they've just vowed to follow Jesus to the death, and they can't even stay awake while he prays, right? Real confidence booster for Jesus, I'm sure, right? So he comes back, wakes him up, goes back to praying, comes back, finds him asleep a second time. Then it happens a third time, and after the third time it happens, that's when the armed group of thugs comes. You know, the stormtroopers arrive to carry Jesus off to a kangaroo court. And then Peter, it's not mentioned that it's directly Peter, but we know it's Peter, uh, chops off a guy's ear. And then there's this weird note about this guy wearing very little clothes, unnamed young man. Some people think it's the the author of this book, John Mark. And uh, he's grabbed by these these armed, jackbooted thugs, and he runs away naked. Like, it's a very strange note in the middle of the story, but that's what happens. Jesus is hauled off to an illegal trial in the middle of the night. But verse 54 tells us that Peter circled back around, and he's following now at a distance. That's how he ends up in these conversations. Everybody else had the, the, the intelligence, if they're going to flee and abandon Jesus, to go home to safety. Not Peter. You know, Peter's the guy who's like, I, got, I, I don't want to get burned by the bonfire, but I want to get as close as I possibly can to see what's going on in there while holding a can of gasoline, right? So that's what he begins to do, right? He's very close, and that's where the story picks up in verse 66. He's in a courtyard near where Jesus is on trial. And in this fulfillment passage, I want to focus on the three denials, and I want to show you that there's two different categories of sin here. Look at verse 66 through 68. There's a servant girl of the high priest, and the Greek here emphasizes her low status. But who does she serve? Right, Kind of the top dog there in the temple. Right? One of the most socially prominent men that you could possibly serve. So she identifies who Peter is. He's in trouble. She doesn't mean much socially, but the household that she serves means a whole lot. She says, you're with Jesus, and Peter plays dumb in verse 68. I don't even understand what you're saying. Parents, you ever experienced this? Right? Kids, pick up your toys. Wow, I, we have this room? 
this room's in this, can I see the floor plans? Has this always been here, right? Like, play, like they play dumb, right? And we do this as adults, right? When our kids do it, it's, it's kind of silly, it's childish. But it's really embarrassing when we do it as adults, right? I didn't even know, right? That's what Peter's doing. I, I can't, are you, are we supposed speaking Hebrew? Like, what's happening here? I, I'm not really sure what you're saying. And then the first rooster crows. And he doesn't even register it, right? It doesn't even connect with, with Peter that the first crow has happened. And then there's the second denial. He leaves the courtyard. It kind of seems like the, the servant girl's kind of pestering him. She follows him. He leaves, and there she is again. And now instead of talking to him, what is she doing? She's talking to bystanders. Did you guys catch that? She's not even talking to him. And how obnoxious would that be? Like you're in a room and someone's like right over there. You literally left that room to get away from her. And now she's talking to other people in the room about you. Uh, you know, Peter's upset just for the wrong reasons. Okay? She's a busybody. And he denies it. He goes over, he tries to manage the situation. No, 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 I don't, I don't know him. And the bottom line here is he's lying and he's denouncing his master. That's what's going on here. But then he moves into another category which is denouncing Jesus while blaspheming, right? Do you see what happens there? They're, they're both denials of Christ. But categorically, we've just moved from like fifth commandment, ninth commandment violations to extreme third commandment violations piled on top of it. His words get him into trouble. I think it's most likely that they recognize his accent, that that's why they know he's from Galilee, Right? There's, there's a ton of people from all over the world in town. It's most likely they're hearing the way that Peter is talking. Because remember, they're in Judea. They're in a different region of the same country. And the accents, even back then, are very, very different. See, if you pay attention enough to the way that people are talking, you can tell that people aren't from exactly the same place. When I was in New Zealand, this is actually very impressive. I was living in New Zealand, and an Australian guy who had met a bunch of us from our college ministry the year before, he recognized, he's like, all right, you and you, meaning me and another guy named Nate, you're, from, you're not from the same place as all these other college kids. We're like, we're cor that's correct. I'm from Florida. He's from Illinois. You've rightly picked up on the fact that none of us sound like we're from Cookville, Tennessee. That's right. And he said, but you, and he pointed to my friend Zach, you sound like a guy that I met last summer in Australia named Michael. You're from the same place. And he's like, that's exactly right. We're both from Anderson County, Tennessee. They just had this unique way of talking. I guess it's like one county up, two counties up. They had this unique accent that someone halfway across the world speaking English could pick up. You guys are the same, different from everybody else. So I don't think it's far-fetched. It's probably not the way he dressed. It's probably his accent that gets him caught. And now this is where he starts using blasphemous terms. He uses two infinitives here. Rather, the Greek registers his language in two infinitives. Anathematizen and omnunai. The ESV uh, renders this as to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. The New American Standard renders it as to put himself under a curse and swear. Now, my problem with both of those translations that I preach from, that I read from on a daily basis, is that they're half clear. Right? If you read those texts without having a Christian background or a study Bible with notes, you might think that Peter is using foul language, that he's using four-letter words here to really emphasize his point. I've actually, you know, I've actually heard sermons about that before, that Peter starts, like, cussing here. That's not what he's doing, okay? The Amplified Bible translates it this way, and it's a little bit more clear. He begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear an oath 
That's what's happening. Okay, this, this Greek word, the first Greek word that appears, anathematizo, right? If you've heard of the phrase anathema, which means a, to be a curse or to a curse, it's related to this word. Luo and Nida, in their dictionary of Greek, define it this way, to invoke divine harm if what is said is not true or if one does not carry out what has been promised. So that's the seriousness of this term. And then there's the other Greek word, which means to affirm the truth of a statement by calling on divine beings to execute sanctions against you if the statement in question is not true. So you see what Peter's doing? In a, in a, in a kind of twofold way, he's invoking the, deny, the divine name of God to emphasize that he does not know Jesus. He's basically saying, if what I am saying is a lie, may God curse me. It's probably even stronger language than that. And he clearly does know Jesus. So in addition to tripling down on breaking his promise to Jesus, he committed blasphemy. He violated the third commandment, as well as the ninth, by making a false oath to fellow Jews, all while in the process of breaking the fifth commandment because he sinned against his superior, his master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Mark is not describing the use of four-letter words here. He's describing the unlawful use of the holy, divine name of the living and true God. Now, we're putting our study of the Westminster Confession on faith, uh, of Faith on pause for the fall. But the chapters that we just narrowly missed out on covering in the spring deal with the matter of oaths and vows. Westminster Confession of Faith 22, paragraph 2 says, It is sinful and to be abhorred to swear vainly or rashly by the glorious and dreadful name of the Lord or to swear it all by any other thing. The next few paragraphs say similar things, but paragraph 5 of chapter 22 says, A vow is of like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. Now, as you remember, uh, we've been going through the Westminster Shorter Catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments as we confess our faith this summer. And here's what the larger catechism has to say about the Third Commandment. The, the sins forbidden in the Third Commandment are the abuse of God's name and all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots. That's kind of the Reader's Digest version of the larger catechism there. It's like a slightly longer, shorter catechism. Okay? The abuse of God's name. All sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots. That's what Peter's just done. According to Westminster Larger Catechism 112, the third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacrament, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be used in a reverent and holy manner in thought, meditation, word, writing, by a holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. So what Peter has done here is serious. The larger catechism goes on to say in 114, what reasons are given to the third commandment. And this is, this is the logic that undergirds the sinfulness of what Peter's just done. Because he is the Lord and our God, therefore his name is not to be profaned or in any way abused by us, especially because he will be so far from acquitting and sparing the transgressors of this commandment as that he will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment, even if many such escape 
the censures and punishments of men. This is a serious... Just think about what Peter's done. He's invoked the name of the Lord to deny that he knows the Lord. He's basically saying, may God curse me forever if I'm lying. And he is. Church, Peter's speech was blasphemous. It's not merely locker room talk that made its way outside of the stadium. And his sinful words placed him far from being spared by God. And his guilt overcame him. That's what's described in the text. The weight of Peter's sin here is great. The reason that I just went through all of those Westminster standards is to help you understand the gravity, the volume, the weight of what Peter's just done. His sin is great and the heaviness of it struck him. Mark uses his favorite word. What's his favorite word? Immediately. To let you know that as soon as these words, these blasphemous words left his mouth, the rooster crowed again. And Peter knew it. He didn't catch it the first time. But the second time that that rooster sang out, if you can call it singing, he recognized immediately what he had done. Remember, it was the word of the Lord that convicted his heart. He remembered what Jesus had said. This is how we get convicted of sin. Truly convicted from the heart. The word of God pierces us. He remembered the words of Christ from just hours before. And verse 72 describes Peter. It's, It's really interesting, this Greek word that describes his crying. It describes him as being thrown or struck into weeping. And Luo and Nida, once again, they're... Their Greek dictionary is so helpful. They point out that the emphasis of this Greek word is upon the the sounds that someone makes as they're crying. It's not the volume of tears, but rather this emphasizes the, the noise that one makes as they cry. This was not a sweet little polite cry. This was a loud cry of deep remorse. Here's some applications for us to make this morning. We must be careful what promises we make. We must be careful what word we give and who we give it to. Second application. We should be zealous for the kingdom, just as Peter and the apostles were. But we must be wary of bluster. Third application. We must keep in mind that the Lord knows better than we do. Part of this trouble starts when when Jesus says, look, I'm going to get struck. You're all going to scatter. And they didn't believe him. They received the word of the Lord directly about their character. It's not like they were reading the scriptures and go, you know, I could kind of see my human condition in this character. No, there's the Lord face to face with them saying, you specifically, within hours, will do this. That that should have caused them to, to be humbled and to reflect on their character and nature, but instead, they thought they knew better than the Lord. We must keep in, not, in mind that Christ knows better than we do. Fourth application. We must be careful with the name of God. We, we must see his name for the glorious and terrifying thing that it is. There, this is a great little story. I'm probably going to embarrass him, so I won't name him, but I have a nephew who was once in a grocery store with uh, his mother or his grandmother, I can't remember which, and uh, an adult, you know, he's a cute little kid, so an adult that they didn't know started engaging him, having a conversation. And at one point, that adult man used the name of God in vain. And the little boy says, don't say that. Very, very alarmed. Don't say that. And the man says, well, what should I say instead? He goes, say nothing. (laughs) 
And that's right. Say nothing. It is better to be silent forever than to use the name of our holy and righteous God in vain. Fifth application. We must remember that the word of Christ is always good. His promises are not like his promises. Did you see that contrast so clearly in this passage? You're going to scatter, and Peter, you're going to denounce me three times in this exact way. And it all comes to pass. And these other 11 men, they give their word, and that does not come to pass. The word of Christ is sure. Sixth application. We should weep for our sins against God. And it shouldn't be this, like, little polite, simple, sad cry, but there should be a deep, heartfelt sobbing that comes from being a transgressor. You know what the difference between, like, the word sin and the word transgression is, like, in the Hebrew? Sin is, I mean, transgression is sin, but sin is missing the mark morally. Transgression is about breaking a relationship. We as covenant people, when we sin against the Lord, when we take his name in vain or represent his name as Christians vainly in the world, We're not merely sinners, we're transgressors as well because we're violating a covenant relationship. Church, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the price for Peter's blasphemy and for ours. You might find yourself with certain sins that lead you to believe that this time you've gone too far. There's no way that Jesus wants anything to do with me anymore. Have you ever thought that way? I kind of wonder if at this moment, at the end of this text, if Peter felt that way. But the good news is this, we can be restored by Christ. We must repent and believe in Jesus. We must turn to him and trust that he can indeed forgive us. In no way am I trying to make light of Peter's sins or your sins. In no way am I telling you that our sins aren't a big deal. I'm simply saying that the mercy and glorious grace of our king is far greater than the depths of our sin. What happens in the movie The Princess Bride? In that duel... As Montoya is on his knees, thinking he is doomed, Wesley just hits him over the head. He doesn't kill him. He just knocks him out cold so he can get away. Because of the mercy and grace shown to Inigo Montoya by Wesley, he lives. And he lives long enough to find the six-fingered man and to fulfill his vow to his father. On his own strength, he fell short. But because of the mercy of the main character of the story, he lives and he keeps his vow. Peter vowed to follow Jesus to the death, but on his own strength, he fell short of keeping his word, didn't he? And yet, by the mercy and grace of Christ, he was restored, and he was able to keep his promise to follow the Lord to his death. Some of the most beautiful words in all of Mark's gospel are in chapter 16, verse 7, which we covered last year at Easter. An angel says to the women at the tomb, go get the disciples and Peter. The apostle that was singled out by Jesus, that that would deny him, that would be scattered, that would fall away in a very specific way, he's singled out by a messenger of the Lord in a very specific, singular way. Go get the disciples and even Peter. Tell them to meet me in Galilee. And Peter was not only forgiven, but he was restored personally by Jesus in a beautiful and fitting way. Remember, Peter denounces Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And when Jesus restores him, when they have that conversation at the end of John's gospel, he asks him three times, each in slightly different terms, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. And every time he answers, he says, tend my sheep or feed 
my sheep. And he closes that conversation by saying this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John says this, this he, meaning Jesus, said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You see the promise of Jesus in this passage. In addition to restoring Peter, who denied him three times in this beautiful, threefold, gloriously fitting way, Jesus promised that Peter would make good on his word to follow Jesus to the death after all. By his own strength, Peter had no chance to keep his word of following the Lord, even if it would cost him his life. But by the power and word of Christ, a man of bluster became a man of true conviction. Peter, by the word of the Lord, which is always faithful and true, became a man who is faithful to the end. Church, do you believe that Jesus is good on his word? What promises has the Lord made to us in the scriptures? Could we even number them all? The word of men will fail. But the promises of the Lord, found in his word, are always fulfilled. Let the hearers understand. Let's pray.